Hello, and welcome to Convergent Dialogues. This is Xavier Bonilla. On this episode, I am very happy to bring the conversation I have with Yasha Monk. Yasha is a writer and academic, and writes on issues of uh, democracy and uh, liberal values. He has his bachelor's in history from Trinity College, Cambridge, and PhD in government from Harvard University. He is the professor of practice of international affairs at Johns Hopkins University. Uh, he's also a contributing editor at The Atlantic, senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. He's the founder of Persuasion, and he also has uh, his own uh, podcast as well. So he has quite the, uh, quite the CV, and he has a new book out. Uh, he's written a handful of books, and the most recent is The Identity Trap, A Story of Ideas and Power in Our Time. Um, and, and this book really talks about um, this idea of why we're obsessed with identity, whether it's race or gender or sexual orientation. So there's a lot of, uh, I would say, themes of kind of the culture wars. But the, I think the through line throughout the book with, with Yasha is how do we have good liberal ideas um, and how do we, we critique some that are illiberal in some ways? And what's the what's the way out of it? So it's it's a it's a fantastic book. Uh, we talk about the motivations he had for writing the book and his particular perspective on identity. We talk about what he calls the lure of the identity trap. We spend a good amount of time, and, and I'm glad we did, on the history of how we got to what he calls the identity synthesis. We talk about uh, Michel Foucault to um, Said to Spivak to Derek Bell to Crenshaw. And how? What are the links here between all of these these folks, if there are any? And so he, he Yasha, kind of marches us through all of those uh, links there. Uh, we talk about the impact of social media, of course. We talk about institutional capture and why that's a problem. And we talk about how to engage with identity issues and, and what would be really helpful to to really try to combat some of these things that are uh, maybe too extreme. Again. Um, I really enjoyed his book. Yasha is, is fantastic for what he's doing there and all of his um, various outlets. Uh, he's definitely someone that you should uh, subscribe to and you should definitely pick up his book and um, really kind of support him and what he's doing. We need, we need more folks out there like him. Uh, as always, you can listen to this conversation and all other conversations at convergingdialogues.substack.com, also on YouTube. Subscribe, follow, and uh, share widely with uh, with with folks you know. And uh, now I bring you Yasha Monk. I'm here with Yasha Monk. Uh, Yasha, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I'm uh, greatly looking forward to uh, to talking with you. I really look forward to it too. Yes, yes, you uh, you're doing many things. You have your own podcast. You uh, you write for the Atlantic, I believe. Still, you're you're up in uh, at Hopkins. You're uh, got your own uh, out outlet uh, in persuasion. You got so many things you're doing. You're writing books. Uh, what what aren't you doing at the moment? Well, uh, uh, sleeping. No, actually, I'm I'm getting I'm getting sleep just <laughs> fine. I should be exercising more. <laughs> yeah, thanks two of us. Um, so you have a new book out, which is uh, which is which is great. Uh, the book is called "The Identity Trap: A Story of Ideas and Power in Our Time." Uh, it's uh, it's fantastic. Uh, I was telling somebody this um, a couple of days ago that this is a book that if if somebody wanted to be like, you know, w- what the hell is is going on in society? I just seen all these things uh, politically and socially, 
how did we get here? What's all this stuff so quickly changing? I would probably say just read Yasha's book. It's a it's a great kind of like just kind of soup to nuts. Here's where some of these origins of ideas started. Here's how it kind of got exported so quickly to mainstream and uh, some ideas of what to do about it. So that's kind of my elevator pitch for your book. How do you <laughs> how do you usually uh, introduce yourself uh, professionally in your background? And then uh, and usually how do you talk about the book generally that you're you're about to uh, promote? Uh, well, listen. Thank you so much. That 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 means a lot, and and that, that's close to the elevator pitch that that I give. I mean, as a little bit of background on me, generally, uh, professionally, you know, I'm a political scientist. I was actually a political theorist, doing a lot of intellectual history and normative political theory in grad school. When I started to worry about some of the political changes I saw first in Europe and then in other parts of the world with the rise of populism on the left, but especially on the right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for many years, my uh, trade, as it were, uh, was to study authoritarian populism and the threat it poses to democracy, something that, you know, I like to say that I was a democracy hipster. I was worried about those things before it was cool. <laughs> um, uh, but from the beginning, I was also uh, worried in the intellectual sphere about a set of new ideas that I saw taking over universities and parts of the left. Um, And since you can only write so and so many articles about how terrible Donald Trump is, even though I continue to believe that, um, (laughs) I thought it was time to, after a number of books and, you know, hundreds of op-eds and media appearances and so on, uh, you know, write about that set of interests. Um, And so what I do in this book is to chronicle the... Uh, rise of a new set of ideas about race, gender, and sexual orientation. Um, you know, some people might call them identity politics or woke. Uh, I prefer identity synthesis because it really is a synthesis of different sets of ideas about identity that I chronicle in the book. And I think it's helpful to have a neutral term that we can use in order to describe this tradition um, and argue about it no matter where we stand about it. Um, and what I do in the book, as you as you indicate, is first of all to show where these ideas come from, to chronicle the origins of this identity synthesis. That gets us to about 2010, to about yeah. the moment when uh, they are really influential in universities, but even some of the main advocates say, well, we're really never going to have real influence outside of the academy. You know, mainstream society just isn't interested in this. But by 2020, it turns out that that was a mistake, that actually uh, these ideas have uh, ended up having a tremendous influence certainly on how we raise and educate our kids, uh, certainly in the nonprofit sector, in media, in the arts, mm. uh, but increasingly also in corporate America and even in politics, in the policies pursued by uh, uh, the Biden administration and others. Um, uh, and so uh, uh, I, I, I explain how, why that is, how it is that these ideas could escape campus, mm. as it were. And I then go on to critique some of the main applications of these ideas up until that point, my account is a pretty neutral one. I'm just trying to understand what happened. At this point, I shift gears a little bit and assess them. And um, the judgment I come to uh, is, is negative. I have a lot of respect for the deeper thinkers who, who originated these ideas. But I think that ultimately we are fighting for values and for a society that would not be good to live in for most people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I critique some of the applications of these ideas to uh, free speech and cultural appropriation and race-sensitive public policies and uh, other areas. And then I make a defense for a more universalist leftism or for philosophical liberalism um, in which we try to overcome the injustices that certainly persist, 
uh, in which we take seriously the ways in which people can be victimized because of the identity group to which they belong, but in which our answers are, I think, more more universalist and more humanist, more more, more ambitious. Um, mm-hmm. I think actually more ambitious for the kind of society that we want to create. Um, mm-hmm. And the one link I'll just say that between my earlier work and this work is that, uh, you know, in the public public discourse, wokeness, uh, quote-unquote, and and, and far-right populism and the kinds of politics of Donald Trump usually are seen as, you know, exact opposites. And ideologically, you know, there's actually some areas of similarity, many areas of dissimilarity, but politically, they help mm-hmm. each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and I saw that in tracing the origin and the spread of these ideas, um, uh, this sort of uh, vulnerability of mainstream institutions to some, you know, quite misguided ideas is making it easier for people like Trump to win elections. And the election of people like Trump is making it easier for these ideas to uh, perpetuate themselves and to really take control in these mainstream institutions. So I actually don't think of this as a political departure. I think my concerns are are of a piece and have been there from the beginning. So since you asked me not just to introduce this book, but also my work, I've sort of Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. given a little bit of context in in the wider set of interests I've had for the last decade. No, that's, that's, that's very, very nice. Yeah, I guess the the, the first the, the, one of the questions I was I was thinking as I was reading it was, you know, I, I've read a, a handful of of books that are kind of tackling this kind of thing with whatever the term you want to use, you know, wokeness, political correctness, et cetera, and it gets a lot of um, gets a lot of attention and definitely incentivized, I think, at this point. And you you were talking about it there, and we'll come to it probably later, but I guess just kind of a uh, just from a kind of perspective on on your own. What do you feel is, I guess, your contribution to this? There's many people in this space that are, you know, I think rightly so, looking at some of these issues and saying, hey, listen, there's there's, there's stuff, there's some, how this gets kind of, you know, again, exported so fast and where we're going with things. This is too much too fast, maybe. Um, there's some issues here. But I guess, what do you feel, how are you kind of tipping the scale here from your perspective, your vantage point, your point of view? I think the universal piece and and some of the philosophical liberalism that you talk about, and especially in the later part, you know, later third or fourth of the book is what I felt was kind of your contribution here, specifically your voice. But what what do you feel is your kind of voice among many voices with with these topics? Yeah. Um, well, let's start with, with 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 the way you describe it, which is the way that most people describe it naturally, sort of, you know, too much, too fast, right? Yeah. Um, I, 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 I call this not too farism, right? Mm-hmm. It's a kind of way of thinking, by the way, saying, look, um, a lot of people who believe in these ideas are very well intentioned. They're responding mm-hmm. to very real things, which is yeah. the real injustice and uh, uh, you know marginalization that does continue to exist in our society, but it's clearly marked it very deeply for for most of its history. Um, and so you know they're doing the right thing. We want to go in the right direction. It's just you know aren't they going a little bit too far? And I think that that is. Uh, rhetorically not very convincing because mm. because I get the response of, well, look, I mean, how can you go too far in fighting racial mm. oppression or sexism mm. or homophobia, mm. right? Mm. Um, and it's also been philosophically wrong because really where the disagreement lies is, you know, a fundamentally different vision of a kind of society that we should create. I, I, we might get a little bit more into the intellectual history. I'm Derek Bell, one of the founders of critical race theory, very interesting, very accomplished scholar, somebody really worth taking yeah. seriously. Yeah, yeah. Um, but he ultimately concluded that Borden versus Brown of education was a mistake, uh, that we should have striven, in a sense, for schools that were true, truly, but, uh, that, that were separate, but truly equal. 
um, he uh, co- you know dismissed the defunct racial equality ideology of the civil rights movement. He wanted to create a society that is fundamentally different from the kind of society that most Americans want to create. One in which how you're treated and how we treat each other is always fundamentally going to depend on the kind of group um, from, from which we step. So I think one difference I have from some of these accounts is that I think I sort of can lay out more clearly where that, that different lies, that goes to your philosophical point. Mm-hmm. Um, but but I also think, uh, uh, you know, I have a comprehensive account of where these ideas come from, how they spread, what's wrong with them and how to do better. Um, mm-hmm. I've seen many interesting, important books by, by friends and colleagues um, who've made real contributions to this topic. I don't think I've seen one that sort of has that yeah. um, uh, level of uh, 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 ambition. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think uh, I just have substantive disagreements with some of the people in the work that has been offered. There's a few mm-hmm. books out, for example, uh, trying to explain where these ideas come from. A lot of them from uh, people on the conservative end of the political spectrum, which is perfectly fine. Um, but they have a read of this, which I think is just mistaken as a matter of intellectual history. They say that uh, uh, you know what you might call wokeness is just a form of quote-unquote cultural Marxism. So basically it's just mm-hmm. you take Marxist ideas, you take out class um, and economic considerations, you put in cultural considerations and identity groups, and it, that's 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 what you've got. Um, and they end up thinking that the main sort of influences on this tradition are not Karl Marx, but other kinds of Marxists like Herbert Marcuse and so on. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, in reading very carefully the origins of these ideas, and that's my core intellectual training as an undergraduate mm-hmm. intellectual history, mm-hmm. and that's what I started doing in my PhD and did to some degree in my PhD dissertation. Um, I just think that's wrong. When you actually look at the history, uh, it, it originates with postmodernist thinkers like Michel Foucault and uh, Lyotard and, and, and Derrida. Um, who actually rejected uh, all forms of what we call grand narrative. Um, and, and part of that grand narrative is liberalism, by the way. So there's a reason why from the beginning, this tradition was really opposed to basic elements of liberal democracy. That's not a not a coincidence, and it continues to be the case. That's one of my concerns about it. But another grand narrative they rejected was, was Marxism and was communism. And so to, 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 to say that that is where the idea comes from is is simply a misunderstanding. It's a consequential misunderstanding because you have to understand the idea to actually appreciate where its power comes from and to understand how to argue against it. Mm. Yeah, and that was the thing I think that was for me in reading it was this, the way you, you charted out was this way of saying, I'm not going to come with any kind of preconceived ideas about these things. Let's take the ideas on their on their face value. Let's look at them. Let's find a kind of way in which they they go about and then uh, we critique them and so as, as opposed to kind of what you're saying like well this is just you know uh, marxism 2.0 swapped out with class and both cultural issues uh thankfully you don't make that move uh which is which was which was very very nice the the question i was thinking while reading the book was why so the book is called the identity trap um and you you can talk about that concept but i guess the idea of identity is it is it the fact that, you know, so much of identity is about us and who we are, how we identify, right? How am I, how am I seeing myself? How am I seeing myself with other people in the world? And that's what's animating people so much. If somebody wants to say my race or my ethnicity, that is a, I mean, 90% of how I identify. And someone's coming and saying, you know, the, these things that are contrary to what they think, or my, uh, 
my sexual orientation or or anything else. Is that why we have this resistance? Is that people are putting so much of their of themselves, of who of who they are? And that's why we keep having these these arguments, these fights, whether it's online or even as it's in in you know kind of out in the in the real world and out in mainstream uh, media, is it's the most important thing. If you don't know who you are, or somebody's telling you you're this or you're not this or you should be this, that's why people are continuously. That's why this has so many so much legs right behind it because right, right. you're really saying about who a person is. Do you think that's why we continue to focus on this and why people get so, you know, exercised about it? Or, or do you think it's something else? Yeah. Well, let me start with the metaphor of a trap because it helps us think through this. Um, uh, you know, when I was thinking of, of what kind of title to find for this book, I was thinking, look, I, you know, I need a title that makes clear what the subject is mm-hmm. so that people, you know, browsing it in a bookstore or online mm-hmm. sort of know what the book is about. Mm-hmm. Um, I need to... Uh, uh, you know, communicate negative valence because for take these ideas critically, I'm ultimately, as a, for take these ideas seriously, I'm ultimately a critic of them. Um, yeah. And that should be clear in the title. Um, but I don't want to sound like I'm, you know, uh, uh, firming at the mouth, right? I want a title that's um, inviting people who feel torn about this tradition to actually read it. And and, and that's the tone and the spirit of a book as, as a whole. Um, and what I like about the metaphor of a trap is that, it's sort of understandable how you can fall into a trap, mm. right? Um, a, a trap has a lure. There's something that attracts you to the trap that draws you in. Good or smart people can wind up in traps. If you fall into a trap, you're not like, you asshole, you idiot. Say, well, but, you know, <laughs> right, fall, right. fall into a trap. That can happen to anybody, right? Right, right, right. Um, and yet the trap is ultimately bad, it, it, and it, including for the people who fall into the trap themselves. Right? Mm. So what is the lure? I mean, the lure is, first of all, that it's true that there's been, you know, real and deep uh, injustice um, uh, in the United States and in other countries in the world, not just in other democracies, in every other country and at every point in in history. Mm -hmm. Um, It is true that a lot of the time, how you are treated did depend on the identity group into which you were born. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's true that some of these injustices persist. And that makes it very tempting to say, well, let's have the most radical possible uh, set of ideas Uh, for fighting against those injustices. And that's what the identity synthesis pretends to be, right? That's what it says. We are going to fix all of those things. That is is the lure. Now, where does the the, the trap lie? Um, We'll get to some of the sort of fundamental reasons um, why actually uh, trying to live up to the universal promises of the United States Constitution is a lot what has allowed progress in in American history, uh, perhaps later in the conversation, right? I think um, actually when you look at American history, it is clear that the country, for imperfect, is much more just today than it was 50 or 100 or 200 years ago. And a lot of the reason for that is the proud tradition of uh, political activists who pointed out the hypocrisy of having these universal values that some people are excluded from but didn't conclude by saying let's rip out those principles, which is what Derek Bell does when he says Brown versus Board was 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 a mistake. Mm-hmm. He said, let's live up to that, mm-hmm. right? If it continues to be the case that many African-Americans today go to schools that are subpar in terms of funding and academic achievement and so on, let's make sure that we put more resources in there so that they actually live up to the promise of Brown versus Board. If some amount of segregation persists in a more informal, uh, complicated, socioeconomically driven way, let's make sure that we fight 
against that. Let's not give up on that ambition. And this is the stance that Frederick Douglass chose in Watch the Negroes, the 4th of July, mm-hmm. um, where he calls, uh, well, elsewhere in his work, he calls you know, freedom of speech, not a mistake that some are bad for marginalized people, but the dread of tyrants. Mm-hmm. Um, it is the, the, the point that uh, Martin Luther King Jr. made um, in the civil rights movement when he pointed out that the, the, the check that had been written to African-Americans from the United States was blank. The promise that was implied in it had not been lived up to. But he didn't say, let's tear up that check. He said, let's, mm. you know, cash the check. Make mm. sure that you actually live up to these promises that you made to us. And you could say the same about Barack Obama and so on. So mm-hmm. so, so that is sort of part of the fundamental disagreement. But, but, but really the trap for me consists in two things. Um, uh, the first is... Uh, uh, political. Um, And it's perfectly normal and natural that in a deeply diverse society, people are going to identify to some important extent with a kind of sub-national groups of which they are part. That they might say, it's important to me that my ancestors are from uh, this kind of place, Um, perhaps to some extent even that they have uh, a form of ethnic pride, um, Mm -hmm. that they put importance in the fact that they're Latino or Asian or Mm -hmm. or Black. Um, and certainly, uh, you know, a, a free society will facilitate that in all kinds of ways. You can form an association that caters to people from a particular kind of cultural or national background. You can, um, uh, you know, seek out the company of others who are like you. Um, you can found a business with people who uh, share that same origin. All of that is fine and acceptable. And it's always going to be a part of a country like the United States. And I have no problem at all with that. In fact, that's one of the uh, uh, wonderful and, and fascinating uh, things about about this country, but what we've now done often is to try and use state power and the endowments of giant foundations and educational institutions to tell people you should identify in this way. Mm-hmm. So I'm not talking here about 15 or 16 year olds who um you know can choose as part of some kind of high school club to spend time with each other some kind of mm-hmm. cultural club i'm talking about many of the most elite private schools in the country which have affinity groups in which teachers come to classroom of 6 or 7 year olds and tell them hey you're latino you go over there you're asian you go over there you're black you go over there mm-hmm. because according to them the right way for children to develop is to develop a strong positive racial identification that i think is a mistake and particularly when you think about what then happens to the white kids in those groups. Um, I, I grew up as a German Jew, so um, you know, when when other kids had either Catholic or Protestant religion lessons, which still persist in German schools, I hung out with the two kids of Turkish uh, immigrants and we just, you know, played soccer or, or, or read teen magazines. That was perfectly fine. But that doesn't seem like a fair solution uh, at scale to say, you know, all the uh, uh, kids from minority groups have to, you know, go and be lectured at and the white kids get to, you know, have recess. That doesn't really seem fair. So what schools actually tend to do is to get the white kids together and try and instill a more, a stronger racial identity in them as well. Mm. They want Bank Street School, a very progressive school in uh, on the Upper West Side of Manhattan has said this explicitly, they want white kids to identify and embrace, identify with and embrace the whiteness. And the idea here, of course, is not to raise white supremacists, it's to raise people who become anti-racist activists, who become aware of all the white privilege they have and, uh, you know, therefore want to give it up. Nothing in history, nothing in social psychology makes me think that that will work. It's quite fluid how you identify. It's quite um, malleable what the most important in-group for you is. 
the ones I tell you, you are defined by being white. Nearly all humans will have the instinct to fight on behalf of the interests of whites and to um, uh, uh, oppose the interests of what we consider to be outgroups. So, so the idea that it's somehow going to make a more progressive, a more diverse, a more fair country to take these kids and try to instill in them as strongly as possible to identify with a racial group rather than trying to say, yes, you can have a healthy pride, a healthy uh, relationship to your cultural origin, but we are also going to try and make sure that you identify with the other kids in the school, that you see what you have in common with people who are like, I think that's just a giant mistake. That's one of the many ways in which this is a political trap. But ultimately, I also think it's a personal trap. And what I mean by this is that, again, it's, it's great to have um, uh, you know, a, a healthy uh, uh, a pride in in in, in your ancestral, ancestral culture and all of that. That's 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 great. Um, but when you have an ideology which tells young people, and I see this in my students who are great kids, um, you know, that like really what defines you deep down is the intersection of your particular identities, mm-hmm. right? That what defines you is that you are a queer Asian American woman who yada, 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 right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, That promises them a kind of recognition of who they are, right? It promises a way to be seen. And some of the critiques on that from the right might be, oh, you know, we're creating these unique little snowflakes. We think they're so important. I mean, it's great. Kids should feel important and special. But what makes you unique and special is not some permutation and combination of identity groups that... uh, you know, just have attributes from outside of yourself that other people are going to share as well. What makes you unique and important is actually your idiosyncratic personality, interests, views, ways of thinking about and relating to the world. And so I think the promise that we make to these kids, that if only you identify with these particular intersections of identity, that's going to make you feel equal, that's going to make you feel seen, is a chimera. They don't mm. actually get that kind of satisfaction from a society in which you keep being reduced to the group of which you're a part. So that's why the trap is alluring. Mm. I can understand why people fall into it. Um, uh, many of the most uh, 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 convincing uh, and forthright critics of the identity trap fell into it at one point in their life, as they themselves mm-hmm. point out. Mm-hmm. But it's also why it is a trap, a political trap for all of us and a personal trap for many of the people who are affected. Mm. Yeah, no, you, you explain it very, very well. I, I, I agree with a lot of that. I think that I think with some of the things that people will have some criticisms with is we'll say, well, you know, I mean, for a long time, people weren't able to to really be so proud about certain aspects of their identity. Or some other critics will say, well, you know, you're you're cherry picking here, Yash. You're talking about the one school in upper Manhattan. This isn't happening, you know, in every single school district in the United States or other places. You know, you're just you're looking at the most extreme cases. This is really just really happening widespread. And 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 I think I know the answer is that is the answer is, is that we do see an uptick of this happening more and more and more places. And of course, people are free to do what they want, whether you could you know critique it or not critique it. But the question would be. Is that what we should shoot for? Is that what we should aspire to? Uh, how, how do you usually kind of talk about those kind of criticism? Yeah, I mean, first of all, look, I think that uh, when you look at how uh, American society has changed, uh, especially in progressive circles, especially in more established institutions over the last 10 years, um, it's just evident that uh, uh, you know these changes are quite widespread. 
Um, you know, there's so many examples. Um, uh, uh, and of course, you can say about any one example that it's anecdotal, but, but you know, if you actually examine your own environment uh, with an open mind, I think you will see that these changes are happening. Um, you know, a friend of mine um, uh, was quite skeptical of uh, uh, these changes actually occurring and uh, was quite skeptical of my stance about this, which is much more sort of progressive in a certain kind of way than, mm -hmm. than, than I am. Mm -hmm. uh, and I didn't see her for a number of years because of a pandemic. Um, uh, and when I saw her again for the first time at a larger gathering, she made a beeline straight for me. Uh, and said, Yasha, I finally see what you've been talking about. And I said, well, how come? And it turns out that the organization for which you worked had uh, you know, just a big meltdown over the course of a pandemic. One of those meltdowns that happened at many progressive institutions with important missions. And the organization she worked for had an important mission that, 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 that I think is very laudable. Mm -hmm. uh, but instead of pursuing that mission, they just spent you know, a year at war with each other and a number of people were basically defenestrated in ways that my friend thought was very unfair. And she said, look, I mean, it's come to my environment. I've ended up changing jobs because of this, because I mm. just hated what became of this place. And and I kind of see what you've been talking about now. And I think a lot of people have had mm -hmm. that experience in in in, in the last few years. Mm -hmm. um, but just to give you one more example from the public school, um, you know, I, I think of the case of somebody like, uh, like, like, like Kyla Posey, who's a uh, African-American educator in the suburbs of Atlanta, mm -hmm. um, who does some work with her school. And uh, traditionally, the principal allowed her to sort of, you know, request the teacher for, 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 for her kid. And she confirmed that that would be okay. And the principal said, sure. And she wrote in the name of a teacher that she wanted. Um, and... Uh, uh, but, but principal kept demurring. She kept sort of putting it off or saying, look, you know, isn't there another teacher you would like? And finally she said, look, what's up here? Like, why, why, why can't my kid get this teacher? What's, what's going on? You know, be, 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 be forthright with me. And the principal said, well, that's not the black class. Mm. And Carl Pussy said, what do you mean that's not the black class? What are you talking about? Um, and, and he said, well, you know, there's no, there's no black kids in that class. Your kid needs to go to, you know, the black class. And this sounds like a kind of uh, uh, an old-fashioned story of racial discrimination in the American South until you figure out that the principal is a black woman uh, uh, who, who's, who's very politically progressive and who has bought into some of this form of what I call progressive separatism, this idea mm -hmm. that uh, even if uh, a kid from a minority group as well as justice has many has many good kids, is in an environment where they're not being discriminated against, unless they have a large number of friends from their own racial group, they're not going to have a kind of positive racial identification that they need. And so therefore, that is a pedagogical requirement. And mm -hmm. Kyla Posey was furious about this. She said, look, you don't get to choose for me or for my kids who their friends need to be. Um, and she told me about watching the inauguration of Kamala Harris with her kids and uh, one of her daughters saying, you know, you know, I want to be president one day. Um, and, and, and she said, look, my, my kids, when they grow up, they're going to have opportunities and they're going to be in rooms of all kinds of people. And, you know, they, they need to have the, the, the experience and the confidence to be in those rooms of whoever it is, right? I don't want them to be in the quote, quote, black class. Um, it's great for them to have black friends, but, but, but that's not, you know, like the important thing for them is to be around a lot of different people. Um, mm -hmm. uh, and so, I, you know, again, you can say, well, that's just another example. You know, we can, we can keep listing examples. Right, but right. Um, 
but 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 I think that's that's what and, and again I think it's absolutely fine that you'll have um uh, you know groups even even fighting for uh, the interests of 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 particular identity groups it's absolutely fine to uh have organizations that defend groups against forms of discrimination it's absolutely fine for people to say you know um a lot of my friends come from the same kind of cultural national background uh, than I have. It's absolutely fine to take great pride in different, you know, cultures and culinary traditions. All of that makes up the vibrancy of a place like America. That's what I love about being in a place like New York City. Uh, that's different from saying, if your skin is black, you've got to be in the black class. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think there's, uh, you can have the best intentions, but yeah, and I think this is where this starts to go, and this is sort of where, where I come on down on this is, yes, that's one example. And then there's another example. And then there's another. And and we if we're seeing too many examples, there's obviously a challenge. There's an issue here. There's something going on. And and I I take your your same kind of uh you know party line here on this is that's totally fine if people want to have groups or clubs that have a you know some kind of coalesced around some kind of group, whatever that may be, but not where it's instantiated within the kind of structural elements of of kind of the basic things in this case, you know, education. So the question will become, and you obviously talk about this in the book. So I have I have a kind of a large scale question here. You can get into some of the, the details of it, but is so 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 where the hell is all this stuff coming from? Like we, you know, I didn't, I, you didn't have this when you were a kid in school. I didn't have this stuff when I was a kid in school, right? And we're not old, right? <laughs> um, you know, where does all this all of a sudden seemingly comes from? And, and so you you do this you do this story. I've heard variants of this story of. Okay, well, some of the postmodernist philosophers, Foucault, Derrida, you know, had this obsession with power. We have to, you know, kind of strip everything of its power, reject grand or meta narratives, um, and then you see this in uh, Edward Said. You see this in Spivak. You see this. You've already mentioned Derek Bell with CRT. You see this in Crenshaw with the idea of intersectionality, and so on. Right? Um, is that I guess if I so give me an example. If I were to talk to philosophers that study postmodernism, or they study Derrida or Foucault, they will say, "Yeah, oh, that's people tell this story, but that's not what he was really saying." From a philosophical perspective, he was just doing this, right? And then if you talk to sociologists, or if you talk to some political scientists, they'll say, well, "You know," or or some legal scholars, you know, Derek Bell was doing really fantastic things within a legal framework that was necessary you know people you know are 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 totally misappropriating critical race theory and in fact you know if you look at systems you know there's some elements of that that might be necessary outside of a racial context same with crenshaw you know intersectionality on itself is fine but then people go in there so do you feel that that story that narrative we we get postmodernism we get it to some of the activists in academia in the 80s and 90s with some of the elements of race. And then we get all the way up to, you know, kind of the the, the folks nowadays, um, you know, such as, you know, Kendi and other folks. Do, do you feel like that's too neat of a narrative? Like it's kind of a too linear kind of story. Where is there places where you could say, you know what, within their own spheres, within their own circles, this is fine. This has merits. I mean, deconstruct, I mean, I'm not a postmodernist by any means, but when you have deconstructionism, I think it's probably a good thing in terms of certain types of art that you're doing. You want to deconstruct some things and play the pieces out. 
That doesn't mean you have to deconstruct all of American democracy, though. <laughs> right. Right. So I don't know. I guess the question is, and you can talk about any of those figures how you want, but is it too linear? And is there any places where we could have some, they get their worth, but here's some criticism. Yeah, I think that's two slightly different questions, right? Like one sure. question is sort of, is it linear? And the other question is, you know, should we dismiss everybody mm-hmm. or indict everybody who played some role in bringing about the ideas that I today find to be troubling, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I think the answer to, 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 to both of those questions is no in different ways, right? So in intellectual history, you know, in a way, intellectual history is always a kind of story of dissent, right? It's always mm-hmm. a kind of story of trying to understand how do we get from A to B, yeah, and yeah. so it always has a kind of the structure always has a kind of linearity. Um, but but actually, when I look at the story, one of the real ironies of it is that you know, you start with Foucault, and the main figures I talk about, and it's obviously a little bit simplified with other people you could mention, you always have to sure. choose a couple of things to focus on. Sure. But the main figures I talk about is Michel Foucault, Edward Said, Gayatri Spivak, um uh, Derek Bell and Kimberly Crenshaw. Um, I do think that at each point, and I lay this out a little bit in, in the book and a lot more in the footnotes, there's real strong links, right? Like each of them is responding to the last person in very explicit ways. So, mm-hmm. so there is a very clear link between these uh, figures, but each one makes a kind of argumentative move that changes, you know, the ideas of a previous one. And ironically, by the end of it, we end up with a set of positions that is in some ways diametrically opposed to the origin. And I lay this out, right? I say that actually Michel Foucault, I imagine if he were alive today, and obviously, sadly, he passed away mm-hmm. in the 1980s, he would be horrified by mm-hmm. much of the thing mm-hmm. that has become uh, the identity synthesis. And of the figures who lived long enough to see some of those changes, we know that they ended up being very critical of it. Gayatri Spivak, uh, one of the deep influences on the tradition, ended up mocking what she called, you know, in, in India, somebody who sells tea is called a tea waller. Um, she ended up uh, uh, mocking the identity wallers at American mm-hmm. universities who she found to be humorless and so on, right? So so absolutely, uh, uh, you know, these figures were in some ways troubled by what mm-hmm. became of their ideas. And that's an old intellectual story. I mean, what yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. did Jean-Jacques Rousseau influence the French Revolution? Mm-hmm. Certainly. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, would Rousseau have embraced what the Jacobins did in every respect? I hope not. Um, no, probably right? not. <laughs> so, so, so that's that's an old story in intellectual history. Yeah, Careful yeah, yeah. what you wish for. Careful what becomes of your ideas. Right? Mm-hmm. Nothing's particularly uh, unusual about this. Um, but, the second but, thing I'll say is that I'll, I'll make a real distinction between the figures I've mentioned so far, mm-hmm. who uh, I do think are fighting for a society or envisioning a society in different ways, each of them, that I fundamentally disagree with. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's very clear in the work of somebody like Derek Bell, who just has a very different kind of vision mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, for society. You know, Kimberly Crenshaw explicitly says that yeah. Barack Obama, somebody who I respect tremendously, uh, you know, from the perspective of CRT, gets everything wrong, right? Like the key yeah. tenets of CRT are in direct conflict with Obama's political philosophy. So mm-hmm. we, we just have fundamental disagreements. But mm-hmm. each of the figures I've talked about are, are serious scholars who who have learned from reading and, and who are worth taking seriously. I think there's a different story of how, uh, you know, from 2010 to 2020, those ideas are then popularized and vulgarized. Mm-hmm. Um in in ways that I often find to be much less uh, uh, rigorous. And so while I have every respect for the figures I've mentioned so far, I must admit to having a lot less respect 
for um, you know people like um, Robin DeAngelo or Ibram X Kendi, who do get their ideas from this tradition, but I think yeah. uh, you know simplify it and sloganeer it in mm-hmm. ways mm-hmm. that uh, that to me are, 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 are much more troubling. Yeah, I, I, I like the way you you frame that. So the one thing that you said there, which if you could expound upon, that would be really really great because obviously I want people to read your book and they can get the full download there. But those links, right? At each point, people will be. My my listeners will be familiar with many of the names we just said, so we don't have to in, exactly go through all of the themes and the whole thing. But could you just kind of uh, zoom in a little bit on that? Zoom in link? on the links. Yeah, that that would be nice. Of okay, how do we get from Foku, and then we get you know uh, Said and and uh, and Spivak, and then the link from Bell, and then the link from how, where are those links? How is the direct link? Because I feel like that's where people when they criticize us they say yeah 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 well, you're just taking us out of context yeah 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 but you're not really getting where's the kind of links where they're kind of building off of each other if you could expound there yeah great question um and i feel like it'll 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 just leave enough mystery as to the exact substance of the ideas that it'll compel people to go and buy the identity <laughs> trap um the um so, so Foucault has many different elements of, 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 of his thought. One of the interesting ones is not just a rejection of Granados, but a rejection of stable identity categories. For he is what we today might call a homosexual or somebody who's gay. Mm-hmm. Um, he didn't like that label. He thought that was a modern convention or invention that was actually really constraining, right? And so he was very skeptical of identity groups. Um, and, 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 and he was really attuned, this is a more important part for what comes up after, to the way in which power is exercised by political discourses, right? Like traditionally, if I asked you, uh, woke you up at 3 a.m., says, how does political power work? You might say, well, there's a president and an army and, you know, laws and from the top down, they tell us what to do or something like that, right? And Fuku says, yeah, 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 that's not really what's important. What's important is the way in which different political discourses uh, the way that everyday people speak, the way that the newspapers write sort of determines the, the scope of possibilities of how, how we can and can't act. That's the way that really disciplines a, a society and conditions it in particular ways. Now, Foucault from that took a kind of political quietism, right, in his famous exchange with Noam Chomsky. Mm. Um, you know, Chomsky says, here's my view of human nature and here's what we have to do to allow humans to flourish. And Foucault says, nah, you know, if, if if we do all of those things, the new thing will be just as oppressive. The moment you sort of disrupt a political discourse, there might be a moment of freedom, but immediately it sort of, or very quickly, it sort of re, reconstellates and, and, and you're unfree again. Um, so the first link to Edward Said is that he's deeply influenced by Foucault, explicitly so in Orientalism. Um, his most influential book. Um, Foucault is just about the only thinker he mentions positively, and he mentions him positively on like page seven or something of the introduction. Um, um, but, uh, and, and the idea is that, you know, the idea of discourses helps to explain how the West was able to exercise this tremendous political power over the Orient um, and how it was able to uh, justify its colonies and exploitation and so on, right? Mm-hmm. But quite quickly, kind of after Orientalism, but quite quickly, Said and and his followers start to say, you know what, it's not enough to just point out these kind of discourses. And we don't want to be quietest in the way of Foucault. Mm -hmm. Um, So later, Said becomes much more critical of Foucault. We actually need to use this attack on discourses in order to change how we think about uh, the world. And so discourse becomes this kind of form of combat where you are trying to uh, use it in order to change our perception of the Occident and the Orient and therefore give more power 
to people who uh, you know had been colonized and so on. So they they seize on Foucault, but they make it a much more sharp political tool. And you see that today, right? A lot of feminist yeah. uh, activism is you know celebrating or critiquing or whatever the Barbie movie because that's what's going to make yeah. uh, you know social change, right? It's a very common idea today in the academy and and, and in public life. Mm-hmm. So there you see the connection very clearly. I'll, I'll, I'll talk to you about uh, another major figure, Spivak. You know, Spivak is a, uh, a translator of Derrida. She's the one who brings Derrida's most important work to a um, uh, American audience and writes a hundred-page introduction um, uh, to, I believe, on grammatology. Um, and so she's really deeply steeped in the work of a postmodernist. And he ba- she basically buys. Uh, the sort of deflationary account of identity that they have, they, you know, that, that there's, you know, sort of essentialist understandings of identity, that there's something that really defines what a woman is, uh, you know, what a black person is, what a Latino is, um, what a homosexual is, you know, those are wrong, right? She, she, she agrees with postmodernists on that. But then she says, look, in this exchange, um, uh, Foucault and Deleuze say, you know, uh, the masses can speak for themselves. It's time for you know intellectuals in Paris to stop speaking on behalf of workers. But they should they, they should speak for themselves. And Spivak says, "Well, I don't know. You know, I'm grappling with this because I kind of buy the philosophical critique, but I don't think that the subaltern, her word for you know uh, deeply marginalized people in in countries like India where she's from, they can't speak for themselves because unlike the you know worker in Paris, they didn't get." Uh, uh, an education, many of them. They might not be literate at the time. They uh, have many fewer resources. So they do need somebody to speak for them, to fight for their interests. So so, so how are we going to do that? And she embraces this idea of what she calls strategic essentialism. Um, so yes, you know, essentialist accounts of philosophy uh, of identity are wrong, but for strategic purposes, we'll act as though they were true, we'll act as though they were right in order to instill this kind of political consciousness and marginalized people to allow them to fight back against injustice better than they have. Um, that is at the root of a kind of progressive separatism and education we're talking about earlier. That is at the root of those kind of affinity groups. And again, you see how it's really a, a, you know, a direct response and mm-hmm. engagement with the postmodernists that creates that. So then we get to critical race theory, where the main figures are Derek Bell and Crimley Crenshaw. And here there is, in part, an institutional story. So uh, these thinkers don't just you know, read Foucault and uh, Said and, and to some extent Spivak, um, for the style is much less postmodernist. They are located in American law schools, um, and they're obviously on, 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 on the left of these law schools. Um, they feel that the sort of traditional uh, forms of legal inquiry are not what they're interested in. And so in the 1970s, the institutional home uh, starts to be in the postmodern inflected forms of critical legal studies. Um, So uh, there's basically sort of postmodernism meets the law. Uh, This becomes critical legal studies. They have a section within, uh, you know, the the, the professional association of American legal academics. That is where the first uh, sort of uh, panels take place that, that start to develop the ideas of CRT and so on. I mean, they have this critique of critical legal studies that for the postmodernist critiques are in many ways uh, right. Um, uh, the deflationary account of how the law actually works, but it's not just, you know, doctrines deciding what happens. Um, they don't care enough about race. And so critical race theory is, even in its uh, name, 
uh, uh, you know, an adaptation of critical legal studies. So again, you see a very strong link to postmodernism. And that's true in the work of someone like Derek Bell as well. Derek Bell is a very clear writer whose, whose style does not read postmodernists at all. But one of the early articles that he writes um, is, uh, you know, Brown vs. Board of Education and uh, the interest convergence dilemma. And what he basically says is you might think of Brown versus Board of Education and say this is a case in which, because of tremendous pressure from, from the civil rights movement and from activists and all of those things, America has finally said, listen, you know, the promises we make in the Constitution aren't actually being applied. This should always have, and now finally shocks the conscience of a lot of the nation. Let's overcome that. Let us actually realize that separate but equal is not an acceptable doctrine. So here the idea would be that there's some amount of uh, appeal to ideals that has led to the changes of the civil rights movement. I would defend that point of view, not in a naive way, but I think there's something important to it. Derek Bell rejects that in ways that clearly draw on the postmodern tradition by saying, no, actually, what drives people is not these abstract principles. It's always the kind of self-interest. And so the only reason why something like Brown versus Board of Education comes around is the self-interest of whites, because in the Cold War, they want America to look more appealing to um, uh, uh, you know, the countries that aren't politically aligned between the United States and the Soviet Union. And, you know, for economic reasons, America wants to develop the Sun Belt. And so for that, you kind of have to overcome, you know, segregation. It tells a sort of just so story about like the different kinds mm -hmm. of things that actually suddenly made it in the interest of whites to overcome segregation. And that really is why Brown versus Board of Education comes about. That is not in style, but in substance, a pretty postmodern yeah. uh, understanding of of what has happened. So here's just, just some examples um, of how at each stage these thinkers are reacting to each other and 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 are sort of amending and responding to the basic set of postmodern uh 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 thoughts and 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 conceptions of the world with which the story starts. Yeah, no, I, I really appreciate you laying that out because I think that's important for people to hear kind of the links there and 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 no point in the book and no point here in the conversation do i hear you're trying to you know just kind of tear down or there's no ad hominem attacks you're just kind of basically just charting out which i think is helpful and what's true many other people do not do that so i, I really appreciate that it reminds me a little bit of uh in kind of in, in my world in in psychology we had this uh implicit association test which was trying mm. to look at implicit bias and the creators, two creators of the test, I've given the test, you know, a long time ago, and haven't recently, but, you know, and the idea was to look at some of the kind of the implicit things to understand, you know, motivation or to see if there's any malingering or things like that. It's all within a kind of uh, psychological assessment setting. And somehow or somewhere, some <laughs> there it got uh, exported to kind of mainstream and now people are looking at their implicit biases and and the creators of the test have said this is not how the test was intended to be it's not meant to be for a wider wider audience and we don't really know what implicit bias is we've spent i mean it, i think last time i checked implicit bias is something that has been had the most amount of research and funding and like the history of the social sciences and we still can't have a, a agreed upon definition of what it is does it exist what it is and you know but you know starbucks is off and running doing you know implicit bias training right and you can see some of that what you're saying the lure of it the trap of it um and it feels a lot of this way with like you know critical race theory is 
in a legal context, it made a lot of sense, or there's some contributions that could be there. But I don't know if it was ever meant to be, it's the same with intersectionality. Like, I mean, you know, but a lot of people on, on the right or other places will get triggered by that. I think intersectionality as a concept is fine. I think it's, but it's where it gets like, it kind of gets out of the lab and then it's just like free reign and people start using it in different ways and then it's misapplied and then it's like all these massive groups of people. And it becomes this kind of uh, way in which certain groups are like using this against other groups in this kind of sanctimonious way of like, this is this. And if you don't have this, and I think it's, you see it here with critical race theory, but I think you see it in other disciplines as well. Um, which is yeah, the story. Just very briefly, the story of intersectionality is that one of the sort of key insights that Kimberly Crenshaw originally has is that in American law, um, you know, there start to be these protections during the civil rights movement for particular protected classes, and so women are one of them, and mm-hmm. uh, black people are one of them. Um, but actually, that doesn't create protections for people discriminated against because they stand at the intersection, that's where the term comes from, of two of these identity groups. And there's, a, uh, I think, a General Motors plant in Michigan in which uh, you know, they started hiring black men at some point, then they started hiring white women, but they didn't hire black women until very late. And then when there's a recession, they fire a bunch of people, and they do it by seniority, so all black women get fired. Mm-hmm. Um, and if there had been white women or there had been black men, that would have been illegal. But a judge said, well, they're not being discriminated against because they're women, because the white women don't get fired. And we're not being discriminated against because they're black, because the black men don't get fired. So they have no legal recourse. Um, and Kim McClenshaw rightly said, well, that's silly, right? If they were discriminated against because they're both black and women, they should have the same kinds of uh, recourse. And that didn't exist at the time in American law. Very straightforward point, an important point. Um, you know, as a social scientist, you can think of that kind of intersectionality as an interaction effect, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you don't have uh, an umbrella, uh, but it's sunny, you're not going to get rained on. If you, uh, you know, if it's raining, but you have an umbrella, you're not going to get rained on. If it's raining and you don't have an umbrella, you're going to get wet, right? So, <laughs> right. so the intersection of two effects has a different impact than the additive impact of each one, and that's often an important thing to recognize. Intersectionality is a helpful way of framing that in this particular. Yeah. context. What then becomes of this concept is sort of two things. One, that it starts to merge with standpoint theory and standpoint epistemology, the mm-hmm. idea that um, if I'm at one sec- intersection of identities and you are at another intersection of identities, I will just never understand you, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and in fact, in the extreme cases, ways in which it's been popularized, because I'm not going to understand you, the, the basis for political solidarity shouldn't be the two of us uh, uh, recognizing an injustice in the world that perhaps affects you more than me and us fighting against it because we think it's wrong, but rather I should just defer to you. I'm never going to understand you. So if you make a demand, I just defer to you because I'll never understand you anyway. But wait, this shows us how it's a personal trap because that means you can't be friends. If I can't understand you, I can't be your friend. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. I think that form of strong standpoint theory yeah. um, becomes really quite, quite cut mm-hmm. And then in activist spaces, there's a second kind of intersectionality, which is, well, all oppression is linked. And therefore, if you want to be an activist in good standing, you have to fight against all of it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's not enough that you're with me on this one course. If not also with me on this other course, then, you know, we're going to throw you out of our coalition. Um, and that is part of what creates those strong ideological pressures in progressive spaces and makes coalition building, building harder. Now, uh, those are all things that today we call intersectionality. Crenshaw probably agrees with some of that stuff and disagrees with some of that stuff, but she's been quite clear that that's not what she was talking about. She gave a nice interview to Jane Coaston, the New York Times journalist, when she was still at Vox, and said, you know, sometimes I read, you know, X and Y intersectionality, and I think, oh, that's interesting. I wonder 
you know, who sort of coined that and that meaning of intersectionality. And when I look at the footnotes and I see it's me, but I never said that, right? Um, right. Yeah. It's, it's, it's funny how these things take a life of their own. <laughs> right. And again, that's the point about the linear or the, or the blaming, right? I mean, mm-hmm. um, you know, we all are at risk of having our ideas misappropriated and certainly yeah. not, uh, uh, not anybody's fault. But I think, uh, again, while the origin of the idea of intersectionality in Crenshaw's work is, is one that, that I found helpful and illuminating, mm-hmm. um, uh, the way in which often intersectionality is used today in political discourse, I think, is is poorly thought through. Yeah, yeah. I definitely want to save a little bit of time for the last bit of the book because I really enjoyed that piece. But before we get there, two big topics here, um, and we can you know use the time as much as you want on each of them. But uh, social media, uh, the internet, <laughs> I feel. I feel uh, people talking about this so much and say so many different things about it. But you talk about it in the book, and you, I, I've heard, I've heard a, a variant of this of this account as well. Of a large part of this stuff that kind of gets it a little more mainstream. Ironically, is during the early days of the internet coming on online, so to speak, if if you will. If is there was, you know, the this website for people that don't know, it's called Tumblr. It's kind of like a sort of um, what would you call it? A kind of blogish sort of space. I don't know how to describe it. It's a, yeah, I think they called it like a micro blogging platform yeah. or something. It just means that you could have your own kind of little site, which was made very easy to what we today would call retweet or repost. Stuff. Yeah, it was very interesting. I actually did like the platform when it first started out, but that a lot I of I used this... to have a very boring blog about European politics on it. <laughs> this is like the easiest way to sort of have right, yeah, content yeah. on the internet that is somebody didn't have resources. Yeah, you could do just like the way it was started, it became used as it was just a lot of like visual kinds of things, a lot of images, a lot of pictures, a lot of different you know, graphics, things like that. Anyways, um, but you, you you talk about where this was kind of like a wild west of sorts. Those are my words, not your words, but of, you know, where people started experimenting with this kind of standpoint epistemology and intersectionality. And so I guess the question here is, is I, I've heard that sort of similar account before where this be kind of became a wild west to kind of a place where people were experimenting with different things. And then we saw that kind of further put on Twitter and then we, or X as it's now called. And then, you know, we, we, uh, we see that some version of that now with TikTok. And I guess the bigger question here, you can talk about some of the origins if you want, but how much has, you know, for example, there's a, you make this argument about, you know, up till 2010, but 2015 till now, big difference and there is certainly an impact of social media and the internet you know we weren't ta- we wouldn't if we had social media and the internet in 1985 things might have looked differently 40 years ago but we didn't have that then we have it now and i wonder how much of the internet and social media while it connected people also did kind of really quickly because you know journalists were on twitter and you know the main, the mainstream was you know had a part there really push this kind of much more rapidly than than it usually would have. Yeah, you know, um, uh, yesterday I uh, saw that Google Pixel um, uh, Buds can now translate forty languages right into your ear, which is amazing. Oh, I saw this too. I, I, I saw this too. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it, it, it really is amazing. Um, uh, but but somebody said, you know, Babelfish is here, and Babelfish is a reference to 
um, you know, basically an early version of this in in, in the Hitchcock's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams, in which you sort of put a, put 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 a fish into your ear that somehow is then able to translate all these languages for you, right? So it's kind of amazing, and I'm, I'm yeah. really excited about this. I don't want to, so I, I don't like this way of sort of shitting on technology in a, mm-hmm. in a dumb way. Mm-hmm. Um, but but of course, the hope for that is, oh my God, we can go to other countries, understand people, and 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 communicate. But but Adams, who was always a wry observer of a world. Um, uh, you know, finished this little section of the Babelfish by saying, meanwhile, the poor Babelfish, by effectively removing all barriers to communication between different races and cultures, has caused more and bloodier wars than anything else in the history of creation. Um, so, so that made me think a little bit about the promise of the internet and what ended up happening on it, right? I mean, when the internet arises, this sort of most like, oh my God, there's going to be amazing uh, yeah. people uh, Trump Friedman is one of the famous sort of evangelists of the time, but there's others, right? Are like, the world is going to be flat, right? Like, everybody's going to be able to communicate. And what people will do, you know, right now, I can't communicate with people in, in, in Nigeria or in India because it's incredibly expensive, or I can send a letter that'll take weeks to arrive. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's even hard to communicate if I'm in Boston, uh, you know, like whatever Irish kid growing up in the suburbs of Boston, it's hard to communicate with, you know, a black kid in LA. Mm-hmm. And now the internet's going to allow all of that. All of that barrier of communication is going to go away. And so there'll be more exchange between groups and communication and so on. As we know, that's largely turned out to be wrong. What actually happens in a sort of Douglas Adams-ish way mm-hmm. is that when you reduce the barriers of communication, what people really want to do is to find people who are most like them under various circumstances. And, and what Tabula allows them to do is not just that they find people who are like them on pre-existing identity categories, but rather who are like them on identity categories that are emergent, but they start to create. And that's because of a tagging mechanism. Suddenly you can sort of tag a term or an idea mm-hmm. and you can find people who stumble across that, who start to say, hey, that's interesting, who start to identify in similar ways. And so you get this sort of creation of a whole ton of different identity categories. Tumblr is where a lot of gender categories start arising, but there's other identity categories that 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 become really influential on uh, on, on on Tumblr. And, and one of the things it does is to sort of you know solve the minimum group size problem, which is that you know in the moment when you create a lot of identities as a teenager. You know, if you're in a high school, even if it's a pretty big high school, you need like 10, 20 other kids who somehow have a similar identity mm-hmm. in order for that to be a viable social fact. And if, you know, only 0.1% of people uh, identify in similar ways, then even in a pretty big high school, you're just not going to have the numbers. You're not going to have enough people to create that kind of group. Well, on Tumblr, you can find people from anywhere in the world who uh, will self-identify in the same ways. And so that allows you to have a huge explosion in the kind of number of viable identities. So that's a really influential thing that happens on Tumblr. But then you need an ideology to hold these different things together, right? Mm -hmm. If you have a platform like Tumblr with all of these people sort of exploring their identities and so on, you need some kind of overarching set of views um, and norms that actually are able to facilitate some amount of communication between them. And that is where a lot of the kind of popularized form of the identity synthesis, which basically draws on the themes I've laid out, but then adapts them comes from. So, you know, you start with the huge importance of discourse and cultural critique. If you say something that's offensive, that's a real problem. You start with strategic essentialism, the idea that, um, you know, we we should deeply lean into being defined by our groups. You start with uh, some of these popularized form of, of, of intersectionality, um, the idea that you can't understand me if I'm from a different group. And we sort of turn that into a meta 
ideology, into a set of precepts of how to treat each other. Mm -hmm. And that then starts to be popularized through um, uh, you know, the written form in places like Ford Catalog, where mm. everybody can publish anything and mm. all kinds of things are published. But one of the influential things that's published is sort of a written form of the identity synthesis. I mean, start having websites like everydayfeminism.com, mm -hmm. uh, which I stumbled across in 2015, 2016. I really think, oh, wow, the stuff that I've seen in the seminar room has now been translated into this sort of like mm -hmm. BuzzFeed style, you know, eight things that are wrong with your yoga teacher who's engaging in cultural appropriation, mm -hmm. um, you know, type stuff. Um, and another key transformation through social media is that it changes the incentives for uh, mainstream or semi-mainstream publications. So Vox is founded in 2013, is a newcomer, but very quickly becomes you know, a, a big, visible mainstream media outlet. Um, and in 2013, when it's founded, most of its traffic comes from the website. Mm. Um, so people would still go to Vox.com and look at, hey, what, what do I want to read today? Um, and, 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 and the constraint of that is that you need to keep people coming back. So if most of the articles they encounter aren't very interesting to them, they're not going to come back, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so any one article has to uh, appeal to a broad range of, sort of you know, progressive, uh, highly informed readers, which is kind of broadly the, the, the profile of Vox readers over time. After about 2015, most of the traffic starts to come through social media. Right, that most people now read, and this continues to be the case. The stuff you read is probably because you came across it on Facebook, on Twitter, on you know whatever platform. Um, and so, as a result, it's fine if I go to a website and most things are boring to me, as long as I stumble across one of those articles on social media. And rather than catering to a core of loyal readers, you can have a much broader set of readers who only read a little bit of your content. And what travels well on social media? Well, social media, again, Babelfish, it connects people who are like each other, not people who are unlike each other, it turns out. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, suddenly you can have a really viral article about the experience of Asian Americans or, uh, you know, the, 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 the sort of advantages of fruitarianism or veganism or whatever, right? But, but if you put that on a website in 2013, people wouldn't have found it who were interested in it. And most people said, what on earth is this? Mm -hmm. But now that things, you know, uh, travel through those groups of identity and strong niche political interest, you can have a publication that consists a lot of those kinds of things and it does real numbers. And so as writers who are specializing in this um, have uh, come to have uh, a lot of success, they're gobbled up by the Washington Post and the New York Times and so on, which hires a lot of people from these publications. And you go in 2010 uh, from, from sort of something like critical race theory of the identity synthesis having very little influence on mainstream publications to the key terms having increased in use, I mean, hundredfold um, uh, by about 2020. Yeah. And then I, I, I agree with a lot of that. You can definitely see traces of that. And then I think the thing that worries this, this stuff that worries me the most is when we see this really having been captured by major institutions on on education and the education sphere uh in the business sphere uh everywhere where we're seeing this in certain types of mandatory trainings or we're seeing this in certain types of uh ways of process of 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 interacting with other uh, colleagues that to me is 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 most concerning because institutions are essential I think for for keeping people connected in in, in a way, um, and we can't have things just done on the internet or done just in this kind of bootleg way that some people think we can do. 
So I guess talk about what it what was the incentive for institutions at this point, you know, kind of on mass to, to to say we're gonna we're gonna get a piece of this pie a little bit. Just chat about that real quick about about that, and then we can talk about some of the ways in which you uh, think we can move move forward. Yeah. So with institutions, I think there's there's a few different mechanisms. One is um uh what i'm calling the short march for the institutions so right, right, right. um uh you know sometimes this is put in some slightly conspiratorial ways that these people are sort of all like deliberately trying to go for institutions to subvert them or something like that that's that's not at all what i mean um but look by 2010 these ideas are really strong on campus and a lot of especially on elite campuses and a lot of um, you know, graduates of 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 Smith College or of Yale or of Harvard mm-hmm. um, have encountered them in classroom. A lot of them have encountered them in trainings and orientations run by administrators at American universities who are way to the left of faculty. And faculty, of course, are way to the left of students, and students mm-hmm. are to the left of the median American. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's an influential cohort of people who come in and. Uh, hold those views, and they end up uh, very strongly influencing institutions that have a few basic characteristics: a, that they recruit a lot of young people; b, that they have a lot of competition for talent. So they don't just say, "Hey, here's a paycheck," but they say, "You can come to this uh, tech company or to this consulting firm or to this NGO and really feel like your values are being respected and and heard in the workplace." And and c, to institutions that claim to be doing good, because that makes it harder to say no, right? Again, it's true in nonprofits. It's true at someone like Google, which I think still has a model, do no evil. I don't know, but perhaps they've quietly dropped it. Um, <laughs> but, um, but, but, but so institutions that have those kind of free characteristics um, become really vulnerable to this internal activism and, 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 and pressure to say, hey, you must conform with a kind of precepts of a popularized identity synthesis where we're imbibing on social media and on campus and that we you know need to have respected here and then of course the fact that traditional media has changed also makes a big uh difference here people become very very afraid of you know any form of article in in the new york times you know claiming that they are guilty of some form of sexism or racism of homophobia whether or not that's well founded it doesn't matter whether it's well founded i've heard this from a number of ceos right mm-hmm. if we um are accused of something, we're going to settle or we're going to try and avoid the news story. Because even if we completely win a lawsuit, you know, by the time that we've won it, we're going to get a tiny notice that we've won the lawsuit, but our reputation has been dragged for the mud for two years. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and that relates to why some of the things like implicit bias trainings are so popular. That's really rigorous, interesting work um, by sociologists at Harvard who, who are quite progressive in personal politics. Um, who who look at which of these diversity trainings work, um, mm-hmm. uh, and and they come to quite skeptical conclusions about mm-hmm. about whether they work. But if I was the CEO, I would mandate the trainings. A because saying I don't is gonna you know get a critical New York Times story that drags me yeah. through the mud. Yeah. Um, and B because of a mechanism that's really interesting, which is if you do have a lawsuit to defend on racial discrimination or sexual discrimination or something like that, one of the key criteria is. Did your company engage in industry-typical activities to prevent this? Mm. And that means that once a couple of your competitors are doing microaggression trainings, you have a really strong legal incentive to do microaggression trainings Mm -hmm. too, even if the research shows uh, this doesn't actually help and might even Mm -hmm. uh, be counterproductive. Um, So I'm slightly joking. I hope I would have a courage to say, no, this doesn't in fact increase the important metric, which is to have a workplace in which 
we are inclusive and people are treated fairly. Right. Um, but I can certainly understand why a lot of people buckle under the pressure and say, you know what, um, other fights, other battles to fight. Let's go along with this, even though everything tells me it's not going to work. Yeah, this is kind of my point too. When when I have you know friends that get super animated about this and like, can you see this company? They've they've been taken in by this and you know all this stuff. And and I say, listen, there's big money here to lose, and a lot of this stuff is people are going along to get along. I think that's a that's a lot of what this stuff is. I think there's probably true believers out there. And again, much like with yourself, I I I think we should be in, invested in diversity and inclusion. But I think that there are. There's a variety of ways to get up the mountain. It doesn't need to only be just one way that one, you know, ideology is saying that it needs to be. Um, uh, very briefly on this, yeah, yeah. you know, I, I think you're absolutely right. I, I teach kids at really progressive universities about some of these topics. And a lot of them have starting points that are much more uh, based on what I call the identity synthesis um, than, than, than my assumptions, my, my, my priors, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But they're reasonable people, nearly all of them. They, yeah. they, they're willing to debate these ideas. They're willing mm-hmm. to grapple with them. They're trying to think through the world. Mm-hmm. If you have a couple of kids, this doesn't happen often, but it sometimes happens, who both have very progressive views about this and bad personality traits, right? Lots of times we have kids who are really progressive on this stuff, but who are open to debate, who want to, who want to think mm-hmm. through the world, right? Mm-hmm. When you have people who perhaps in the past have unfairly attacked some of their classmates, you know, said stuff on social media about them uh, that that led them to being ostracized, even though, you know, a lot of people knew that it was mischaracterized, then it's really hard to get the classroom going. And so you have yeah. these moments of enforced silence in in America that 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 really trouble me. I, I'm troubled by how often today I go to lunch with somebody, a little bit less now than two or three years ago, but still quite often. And people with completely reasonable views say, as a matter of course, but of course I would never say this publicly. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And, 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 and that's really troubling. By the way, just one more story in terms of how this can be a trap in concrete ways. I remember once teaching a, 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 a class on political writing where the idea was for students to you know, write their own speeches, op-eds, think tank reports, uh, f- forms of narrative journalism. Some great work came out of a class. Mm-hmm. I had one uh, student who, who, who was a black woman uh, who clearly from all of her demeanor was very open to, to conversation and, and constructive feedback, which is what we gave to all of the students in the class or the workshop-based class, right? Mm-hmm. Nothing suggested that she would somehow react in, 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 in a bad way to being, you know, criticized in appropriate ways. She wrote a, a speech, uh, you know, that uh, uh, was sort of like, you know, if if if, if um, the producer of, of Black Panther wins the Oscar, what, what should he say in a speech? Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's a good number of years ago now. Um, and, I, 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 you know, the students who are so good in giving constructive feedback to each other just would not engage. Because like, here's a Black woman who's written about a kind of social justice theme. Mm-hmm. I can't possibly criticize you know what she wrote and i got really mad at my students and carefully i told them look she deserves the same pedagogical experience when everybody else the point of, of this class of yeah. is to get constructive feedback it was a good draft she was a talented student mm-hmm. but it, it had flaws like all the other writing but every, every other member of the class had done right sure, sure. like you need to help her the same way that you got help from your classmates. Okay. You think you're treating her as an equal, you think you're being kind to her mm-hmm. by not allowing her to have the same kind of pedagogical experience? No. Mm-hmm. Um, you're robbing her of the benefit of his class. Absolutely. Um, 
and and so I think there's moments where actually everybody's reasonable, or a lot of people are reasonable, but nevertheless, there's the silence. It's 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 something that I really I really dislike it. I, I really just think mm-hmm. it's really corrosive, and mm-hmm. and and it's unfair not to the people who 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 have to shut up. It can be unfair to them too, or people who get unfairly maligned. It's often unfair to the people who were supposedly treating in this special way. And on a complete side note, you know, somebody who grew up Jewish in Germany at a close moment when sort of I was a member of the salient victimhood group within that context, especially mm-hmm. in the 90s and 2000s, I always hated being treated like that. And so I'm just not willing to treat yeah. others like that. Of, of course, of course. Yeah, the same. I mean, I'm also a professor. And, and when I teach, uh, I've always been surprised at how it's very hard for students to to speak up and to say things in class in front of everyone else because of this fear of, I don't want to say the wrong thing, whether it's with me or with other peers. And I really, by the end of the semester, they, they kind of break out of it, but I really have to kind of push a little and say, you guys, we have to try out ideas here. Let's be respectful and let's be mindful of others, but we have to try things out. And, and I think it is that that does also kind of make me very, very frustrated as well. And one of the things that I both model, hopefully, in the book and then talk about in the conclusion briefly is um, how do you argue back, right? If you want to argue back against these ideas, um, but you don't want to either sort of prostrate yourself and be overly apologetic for disagreeing with something, nor do you want to be the jerk who's like, you're going to hate me anyway, so I'm just going to say this (laughs) in a provocative way. These are two pitfalls that people tend to fall into, you know? How do you actually, on the basis of your genuine values and beliefs, Argue for these ideas, um, and and read the read the book, read the conclusion to 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 have a little bit of a guide. But one thing I'll say is that um, it's got to be on the on on the basis of values you're proud of, right? I have values for the kind of society I want to live in, but I'm proud of. I think we have the right values. People might disagree. I might be wrong, mm-hmm. but but these are the considered views I hold, mm-hmm. and I shouldn't be apologetic about them. But nor should I be mean or rude to people mm-hmm. who disagree. Mm-hmm. That can be legitimate disagreement. So I think when you argue on the basis of I. I know what my values are. I know the good values. You're not going to be either overly apologetic or or joke about them. You can just affirm them um, mm-hmm. and explain to explain them, and get into conversation with people about. Them. Yeah, yeah. The last question is, is sort of similar on that. Is how how do we? You, you talk about all these things. How do we pay attention to many categories? How do we uphold universal values and neutral rules? And manage universality aspirations for a just world. Again, you talk about this philosophical liberalism. How do how do we? What do you think is the way forward of of, of how to navigate the world in these ways? Yeah, so there's different kinds of sets of values uh, on which you might base uh, an opposition to the identity synthesis. In fact, one of the reasons why I think that it'll ultimately fail, even though it'll likely have significant influence for a long time is that there's just too many moral and political and religious traditions but really are fundamentally at odds with this, you know, identity first view of the world. Um, in my own case, I, I'm, I'm a philosophical liberal. I'm kind of center-left philosophical liberal, but but I'm a philosophical liberal. I think that the ideas of individual freedom and collective self-determination and political equality have made the world a much better place and that we should defend them. Now, in its essence, the identity synthesis is an attack on philosophical liberalism. In fact, Richard Delgado, in his introduction to critical race theory, says, we really never thought about conservatives. Now that uh, you know, they're becoming more influential in the world, perhaps we should sometimes think a little bit about the danger they pose too. But really, for us, the main impediment was always liberals. You know, mm-hmm. Liberals, and even for Peter McBell, the civil rights movement, those were the foil against which they were arguing, not, not, not conservatives. And so 
the identisynthesis can be boiled down. I talked about its themes earlier, but it can be boiled down to, I think, sort of three main critiques or three main points, all of which are implicit critiques of liberalism. So the first is that the principle, the primary prison for understanding and looking at the world should be through identity categories like race and gender and sexual orientation. The second is that uh, universal principles like those enshrined in the United States Constitution and the Bill of Rights um, have only ever really had the goal, only ever really had the purpose of pulling the wool over people's eyes, of cloaking and perpetuating forms of racial and sexual and other discrimination. And then the third point is that, therefore, we have to give up on universal principles. Trying to live up to them is the wrong approach. We should make how people are treated uh, explicitly defend on the kind of identity groups of which they are part, both in public policy and in the kind of ways in which we we treat each other. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that liberalism has coherent and convincing responses to each of these three points, which takes uh, the fact of racial discrimination and other forms of marginalization seriously, mm -hmm. but without throwing the baby out of the bathwater. And so the first response is to say, no, to understand the world, we have to look for a prism of all kinds of different ideas and concepts. Yes, absolutely, race and gender and sexual orientation are one of them. You won't understand the United States today without uh, understanding the persistence of racism, for example. But we also have to look at class. We also have to look at ideology. We also have to look at religion. We also have to look at all kinds of other uh, uh, factors and entities in order to understand how the world works. And in fact, how we should interpret a particular situation should always depend uh, on, on that particular situation. So for somebody like Robin D'Angelo, any time a white person interrupts a black person, they are bringing the entire apparatus of white supremacy to bear on them. That might be true in certain kinds of situations, mm -hmm. but you know what? Other people who interrupt each other all the time are friends and family members and lovers. It's a perfectly normal form of communication. Yes. Yes. And so if you're saying that every time that, you know, a close white friend does that to a black friend or, um, you know, uh, you know, uh, 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 two people who are married to each other do that, that just makes me think that Dom D'Angelo has no friends of different races who are genuine friendships, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. So so I think that's just a mistake. You have to let the situation guide you in how to interpret it, not come with this is the most important prism no matter what. Mm -hmm. The second answer is to say that, yes, of course, uh, 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 you know, the United States, like all societies in the history of the world, have badly failed to live up to their principles a lot of the time. And in particular, we have excluded people in extreme ways from the enjoyment of the kind of universal values on which this country was supposedly founded. Mm. I also think that we've made, I said a little bit of this earlier, tremendous progress, imperfect, but tremendous progress in living up to those values over time. And one of the big reasons for that is the invocation of those principles. It is people mm -hmm. like uh, Frederick Douglass and Martin Luther King Jr. and Barack Obama saying, hey, how can we talk about these values that supposedly we care about and then exclude people in those ways? By what right are you saying a white person gets to do this, but a black person does not get to do this? If you want to actually live in the kind of society that you claim to be proud of, you got to cash that check. You got to mm -hmm. uh, live up to those aspirations. That's not perfect. I mean, you know, interests are always going to 
be high and 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 prejudice exists and none of that is easy to fight it it, it wasn't easy to uh emancipate uh enslaved people or or or, or, or win civil rights legislation but the insistence of living up to those universal values has been a crucial part of that and therefore we should aim for a society not of separate but truly equal not um one in which how people are treated will forever depend strongly on the group in which we're from but rather a society in which what opportunities you have how you're treated comes to depend less and less on the kind of group into which we're born because we continue to make real progress towards living up to those universal standards. So I'm not saying let's ignore injustice, let's ignore mm-hmm. the way in which people's uh, life opportunities are influenced by identity. Nor am I saying that, you know, a good American is one who is just American uh, in some abstract way and is not, you know, a Nigerian American or, or Irish American or a Latino. No, identity will always have a place in our society in those ways. But what we should aim for is a society in which how we treat each other becomes less rather than more dependent on the kind of group from which we hail. Yeah, I wholeheartedly agree. Um, the book is called The Identity Trap, A Story of Ideas and Power in Our Time. Uh, Yasha, where are the best places to find yourself? I know you got you got the podcast, you got Persuasion, you got your writing at The Atlantic, you're everywhere. So where are the best places to, to find you uh, uh, currently and up to date? Uh, free action items by the book, The Identity Trap. Uh, uh, subscribe to my podcast, The Good Fight, yes. and subscribe to the magazine and community I run called Persuasion at persuasion.community. And if you want to add a fourth action item, tell your friends about the book. Thank mm-hmm. you. <laughs> well, Yasha, this was so much fun. I thank you for your time and really for your kind of uh, comprehensive way of explaining all of these things that we hear about a lot of the time. And I, I really appreciate your voice and all the work you're doing. We need more folks like you. So big, 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 big thanks. Thank you, Xavier.